You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. At the Christian colleges where I've taught, the question, where did you go to school, sometimes brings tension as much as information. In evangelical circles, as well as in other places, the phrase public school has come to mean second-rate, underachieving, ideological, even dangerous for children. Walter Feinberg, in his new book, What is a Public Education and Why We Need It?, asks us to back up and ask each other what we mean by public, what it would mean to live in an educated public, and what ends should motivate the changes we make in the ways that we do school. Christian Humanist Profiles is pleased to welcome him to talk about these questions as we discuss that offering from Lexington Books. Thank you for coming on the show, Dr. Feinberg. Thank you for the invitation. Well, in this book's introduction, you say that what is a public education does not break new ground so much as it renews an old idea of public education. Now, what forces in 21st century education and educational policy make such an insistence on memory and an important political act? The recent um, discourse on education has emphasized two aims uh, almost exclusively. One is uh, national security, uh, as in uh, the uh, Reagan-era document called The Nation at Risk. And the other is education as a commodity. the idea there is that we uh, need to educate our children so that they can get good jobs and then contribute to the economic stability and growth and competition of the country at large. Um, those two factors, in my mind, not illegitimate, um, are uh, are. Uh, monopolizing the idea of what education is. And it has no distinction between a public education and any other kind of education. In my view, a public education has an additional and very important uh, aim, and that is the development of a public. And so uh, I think... uh, the, to see schooling and especially so-called public schooling in terms only of commodification and national defense is to shortchange what we really should be meaning by a public education. All right, very good. Well, your project in this book has one of its axioms that for the purpose of public education, One central anthropological datum is the capacity for human beings in particular to see a big picture that encompasses a usable past and a future that is at the same time unknown but also susceptible to speculation. Now, why is that big picture anthropology important for building up a program of public education? My concern about education in a country like the United States is the need for um, strangers, essentially strangers, to come together in a community of respect 
uh, for one another. And uh, that goal requires a vision of your country, both in terms of its past and its possible futures. Now, as a part of that vision, I think it's it's important that that vision not be turned into a xenophobic um, idea that this country is better than any other country or that my group is better than any other group. Rather, the vision is one of an openness and a dialogue, whereas I may have something to teach you, but by listening to you, you also have something to teach me. And what allows that vision to take place, I do think, is a kind of historical understanding of the conflicts and the um, consensus that the country has gone through throughout its through its history. And not just the country, I'm afraid I'm sounding a little bit too nationalistic here, but um, the human race. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I mean, the the idea of strangers with a common fate is certainly something that, that weaves throughout this book. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting was the way that you distinguished yeah. that vision of things from early theories from which you pull, but which ultimately, because they don't recognize that strangeness, aren't as useful for a 21st century context. T- talk to our listeners a little bit about how your vision differs from Aristotle's in that respect. Thanks. Um, just just to clarify, the, the, I think you got it right, but might hear, they might hear it wrong. Um, I was speaking of a common fate, F-A-T-E. Oh, yes, 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 sorry. Common fate. Um, and so uh, to understand that we are embedded in a situation where uh, our uh, fate, our individual fate, is tied into the fate of the larger uh, society and of the human race, indeed, I would say, of the planet itself, um, is a critical part of a public education. Now, I draw on Aristotle's understanding of a public education, as, but his view is, uh, of education is that it's an education of like-minded people who share friendships with one another and who are able to, because of that friendship and commonality, come together and discuss what is best for the society as a whole. In my view, uh, we're not as fortunate, I suppose you might say, as Aristotle to be able to assume that there's such a commonality among individuals. Um, but we should be able to assume that there's a certain level of goodwill among people who we don't call friends um, and that we can engage with about our futures. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, too. I, I think that the sequence of technological revolutions over the last, I would say, 400 years have sort of made that a necessity in a way that Aristotle probably wouldn't have anticipated. I mean, the 
the speed of ship travel and then train travel and automobiles, internet, you know, whatever uh, favorite technology you pick, it seems like that makes uh, interacting with strangers something that's important now in a way that wouldn't have been in 4th century Athens. I, I agree totally. And also it's that it, that interchange goes beyond national borders. Mm-hmm. And so there is there is a global connection that mm-hmm. we have. And um, we may not uh, have that connection in the same place uh, with everyone in, everyone in in the global network. Uh, but there certainly are points at which we connect with anybody and everybody. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, one tension that uh, you explore as well, really throughout the book, is the tension between tradition on one hand and autonomy on the other. And you talk about education being, uh, and again, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not quoting your exact language, but you talk about it in terms of an acculturation that has a self-critical edge. Let me ask you this again, you know, in, in similar terms, what sorts of things in the 21st century militate against tradition? What sorts of things in the 21st century militate against self-critical awareness? Well, I think what you mentioned um, a, a moment ago uh, about the uh, the the, the um, maybe we could put it as the loss of community or the fragility of community mm-hmm. um, because of the ease with which we can communicate um, across um, areas, the uh, uh, facilitation of travel, the introduction of um, areas that are new and strange to us. I think that's all part of the the um, threat to tradition um, and and to community. Um, here, here's a nice example. When I first came to the University of Illinois, now almost 50 years ago, um, if we wanted to make a long-distance phone call, there was one phone in the department that had the capability of making a long-distance call. We had to check that phone out with the secretary. We had to log in the time uh, that we were making the call, when the call ended, and who, who the call was to and what it was for. Um, you, you can see how that, um, just that little procedure um, ties you into uh, the uh, the visible community and separates you from others. That included people in Chicago, by the way. Make a long distance call from Champaign to Chicago <laughs> involved the same the same ritual. Now, I think every day I probably get two or three emails from uh, abroad. Most of my emails do not come from Champagne. Um, and um, it's very easy and essentially doesn't cost anything to Skype someone uh, across the world. Uh, those, those factors lead to people being uh, aware of differences within um, different communities. On the other hand, it probably leads people to feel threatened about what's 
happening to their own community um, and the um, the fragility of something that they believe has been their traditions for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing about the um, the threat to community in terms of the threat to or the the inhibitions on reflection. Um, there are a couple of things there. One is that reflection is always partial. partial. Um, we can never reflect upon, we can't do what Descartes thought he could do back and reflect upon everything that came before his existence, came in front of him and challenge and question and doubt until he got to the foundation of doubt, which was his own thinking. That no one does. What we do do is we, some of us, stand apart at different moments and reflect upon particular aspects of the things that we take for granted. And as we do that, we can come into uh, awareness of alternatives. Um, But many of us don't do that. Many of us can't handle or haven't been taught to handle contingencies. And so when our uh, traditional ways of doing things uh, is challenged, we don't have the skills necessary to um, take that challenge into account and to um, use it as a healthy anecdote to um, improving and engaging and um, uh, advancing um, our tra- traditional ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to some of the thinkers that you engage in this book. Uh, one thing that the, the Christian Humanist Radio is always radio network is always interested in is conversations about interesting books. Uh, our listeners probably know John Locke mainly for his epistemology or maybe for his political theory, but you note that his work does some damage to the ideas that make for good public education. What cautions would you offer our listeners about deliberation and public will as John Locke presents them? Well, I should say I like Locke too, and I take him very seriously. Uh, there is one aspect of Locke that I think needs to be amended, and probably where Aristotle, again, was, would be a useful uh, uh, supplement to Locke. And that is, uh, when people come into the public area to state their preferences, Uh, There is nothing in Locke that says that those preferences should be uh, reflective preferences. That is, uh, in Locke, we come together as individuals uh, to to, uh, settle disputes or to select those who will settle the disputes for us. Um, that's not an educational move, it's a political move. Mm-hmm. And as a political move, it may be perfectly reasonable. But as an educational move, one also wants to encourage the re- reflection on one's own 
uh, immediate desires so that they can be um, uh, uh, transformed or changed. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the. It's not that I I I like Locke. I think as a guardian of political rights, he's really a critical thinker for uh, for the West. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he's not, in my view, sufficient for understanding uh, public, the, the formation of a public and the role of public education uh, in that formation. Right. And I mean, along those lines, if I can, if I can paraphrase you a bit, I mean, what you seem to be saying is uh, Locke's theory of the public will is entirely descriptive. There's no sense, there's very little sense in Locke, I'll put it that way, that a political community might have as one of its interests shaping the desires of the citizens. It's simply a measurement and a reflection of the desires that are, are already there. Is that a fair enough paraphrase? I think, I think that's a fair phrase. And just to add to that, the other thing that's missing, which I think is pretty critical, is the desire to maintain the coherence of the community. Mm. And that desire requires people who are reflective about their own desires. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think Locke could be improved on. Okay. Well, people who listen to the Christian Humanist Radio Network know that I personally am a big Alistair McIntyre person. I teach his book to undergrads. I incorporate his ideas into my own teaching. I really dig Alistair McIntyre. That said, I also welcome reasoned criticisms of McIntyre. And I read one in your book, so I want you to tell our listeners, uh, what shortcoming do you see in After Virtue? And what alternative would you propose in the project of educating the public? There are two things about McIntyre. One is uh, probably comes from After Virtue, um, and the other comes from um, Who's Justice, Which Rationality, I think. Okay, both Um, our territory for the show. Yeah. Um, The After Virtue, again, I should say I, I do like McIntyre. Mm-hmm. I, I think he he um, he advanced a discourse that I see myself as a part of. So um, this criticism should be seen as a friendly criticism. But in After Virtue, he is so much uh, um, committed to what I think I would call role virtue mm-hmm. uh, that he doesn't quite understand that in modern societies our identity is wrapped up in many different roles and some of them are conflicting and there isn't a neat packaging that goes say from self to family to religion to community to whatever uh, where things are sort of not much intention with one another. Rather, in the, I think the uh, the hallmark of the postmodern era is the issue of role conflict within each of us, and that I think could could have spent more time uh, deliberating. 
That leads to the second problem that I have within the one that comes from Who's Virtue. And that is when he talks about a public, which I appreciate because, again, in contrast to Locke, he, um, he does talk about a public. He does understand the importance of communal coherence. But when he talks about a public in Who's Virtue, he's very pessimistic in the sense that it could be reconstructed. He takes the, uh, the, in his view, the idea of a public or the realization of a public happened um, in Scotland uh, maybe two or three hundred years ago when a small group of like-minded uh, citizens um, shared the same intellectual groundwork and the same cultural commitment and therefore um, could come together um, as a, a public. Now, I, he rightfully says that that's probably not possible in the modern age and just drops it there um, quite pessimistically because he, like I, appreciate the idea of a public. Um, but I think that uh, that was uh, uh, probably too pessimistic from my point of view. Mm-hmm. That's fair enough. And it's interesting that that vision of the sort of 18th century Scots public square uh, seems to be something like what Adam Smith is working with in his moral philosophy. You bring Adam Smith into this book and note that unlike 21st century neoliberalism, and you can talk about, you know, what that term means in terms of your book here in a moment, but unlike neoliberalism, Adam Smith, like McIntyre, wants the realm of market activity to be limited by family, religion, community, state, things like this. Your claim seems to be that neoliberalism removes those boundaries, turns everything into a commodity. Why is that distinction such a perilous one to ignore? And what sorts of of influences has that neoliberal ideology had on public education? The um, the peril of ignoring the distinction is that everything gets turned into a commodity, um, which and and everything should not be turned into a commodity. It's just um, a bad way of thinking. It's it's um, it, it's destructive, uh, and in for education, it has been the motive, I think, behind the move to privatized public education and to um, open up choice without constraining what happens when um, people of different social classes, different backgrounds, and so forth um, are encouraged to choose their own educational experience. What happens, of course, is that people tend to um, select those schools that are most reflective of their own values. Now, in many ways, that's not a terrible thing, uh, but what's left out is the um, connection with people who are different from yourself. And so schools have become... Um, much more, much, much more unequal um, in recent years than they had been 
And um, as far as I can see, there's not a lot of um, a, a movement to, 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 to change that. I, I guess I should qualify that. They, they've become more unequal in terms of their ability to um, advance achievement. And there's nothing in there uh, as well to provide students with a sense that um, they're all in this together. And, uh, you know, when I went to school, maybe it was the same when you went to school. I had kids in my class of all kinds of religion, from all kinds of religion, not Islam, but, but Christian. Oh, Jewish. see, I actually did, so. <laughs> yeah, okay. You did what? Oh, I did have Muslims in all of my classes from early yeah. elementary oh, school all the yeah. way to high school. That's interesting. I, I, I did not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, um, and, and I had kids who were quite wealthy and kids who were in the middle and kids who were not wealthy at all. And the, there was an informal, informal mixing of people, mm-hmm. uh, which I think was very important. Um, and so the, that's what I think is missing when schools get commodified. Mm. That's one of the things. Well, it's interesting because I, uh, one of the courses I teach here at Emmanuel College is a medieval literature course. And when we read a few surahs of the Quran, uh, the, the first time I ever taught the course, I, I posed the question, assuming I'd get about half the class, you know, how many of you are on a first name basis with a Muslim? And only my own hand went up. Uh, uh-huh. So, I mean, it, it, definitely that dynamic you're talking about, I see playing out because uh, there are mosques in North Georgia, uh, but these kids didn't know a Muslim. And so, you know, yeah. their their perception yeah. of their neighbors, let's, let's just use the theological term there, right? <laughs> uh, their right. perception of their neighbors, I mean, was very, very different from mine because, you know, they never had to think twice about ordering sausage pizza for a birthday party because they wanted to invite their Muslim friend. Right, right. And it opens, I think it op- without that connection, or at least without that connection with others being generalized um, by a good school, mm-hmm. it opens the student up to the worst propaganda. When a po- politician uses... Um, uh, uh, Muslims to personify evil, mm-hmm. and if you don't have if you don't have some experience that checks that and say, or, you know, Abraham or whatever, Ibrahim, mm-hmm. and I, he was a good kid. I don't know what so and so is talking about. Right, um, right. Without that, you know, there really is a danger to to especially any minority group because. Right now it may be Muslims, tomorrow it may be um, some Christian group. Uh, it, it just, and without that kind of, in, it's often informal, mm-hmm. but it allows for the teachable moment. And without that, I think we are in some peril. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, we're just recording right after the bombing in um Brussels and Belgium. Yes, indeed. And it's interesting that the uh, air 
air, air, airport and, and bus to, uh, subway bombings. Uh, it's interesting, uh, in Belgium, which is a country that's quite divided uh, um, linguistically, religiously, and the like, that their school system largely allows people to be separated according to their basic ideological and religious beliefs. Hmm. It's not just that they allow it, as we do, of course, um, which I, I, I'm in favor of. I don't think people should be for but they support it. Mm-hmm. So religious schools are supported as much as non-religious schools. Um, and so Muslims and Christians and Jews can be quite separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, the, another way to think about this, and, and my, the, my critic will rightfully point out, well, bringing people together doesn't necessarily make them friends. And that's, ex- that's a precisely right. Uh, you can see this with integration at universities. You know, sometimes the black kids hang together, the white kids hang together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does enable a teacher who wants to do this to um, use that to sim- to 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 um, to teach lessons about belonging, about. Uh, your neighbor, what I owe my neighbor. Um, it just creates a setting where good teaching can happen. Um, and it can happen with an object lesson right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, it's not that bringing people together necessarily makes them uh, like each other or makes them part of a broader network, but it can do it. And it can do it by providing the friends, the experiences, the background that kids need um, to see things in more concrete ways. Very good. Well, I want to turn a corner here and talk about uh, one of the strong features of of this book, namely that public education, as you envision it, has a moral vision as well as uh, that economic vision that we talked about. And the terms that you use to talk about that moral education are non-fossilized versions of public values. So tell our listeners, uh, what does it mean for a value to become fossilized, and what alternatives in terms of ethical philosophy should public education look to? Well, um, I think the, the idea of a fossilized value is something some way of thinking about uh, um, the way things ought to be that is rooted in an unreflective understanding of principles and the past. It doesn't mean that principles are not important. Of course they are. Um, but it means that sometimes principles can get in, can get in the way of thinking about how to think about them. Um, uh, let me take something that may be quite controversial in your part of the woods and mm-hmm. is actually controversial here, the Second Amendment. Sure. How do, you inter- how do you interpret the Second Amendment? Well, there are different possibilities. One, you can just think that it 
give it a literal interpretation, the right to bear arms is my right. Regardless of the consequences of that right, it is a right given to individuals. Another interpretation would be that the right was given to individuals as members of a militia. Mm -hmm. So if somebody is a member of a militia, they have a right to, um, to bear arms. Now, neither one of those interpretations um, is something that the Constitution by itself settles. Mm-hmm. You can, and, and the court in different times have kind of taken, or different members of the court have taken different positions on that. But it is, it is a, um, it is something that's open to interpretation. And for people on both sides of that issue to be able to understand how it is that you can get such a different reading without being unpatriotic. Um, would be an important way to reconstruct that value. So what is a fossilized value in this case? A fossilized value is not to under, is to fail to understand um, the capacity for interpretation, the, the openness of a text to interpretation. Here's an example from my religion, which is Jewish, mm-hmm. we're coming up short time, and we go through the plagues in the in the Bible. Now, and the way the Seder text will give it is that um, you know, uh, God sent down uh, toads, and then Pharaoh relented, and then Pharaoh changed his mind. Mm -hmm. Well, as I understand it, in the Bible, that, and again, this is from a a rabbi, uh, so I don't read Hebrew. The interpretation is not that Pharaoh changed his mind, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Mm -hmm. So that, in other words, the intervention here was not an intervention of Pharaoh's changing his thinking, but it was an intervention that was programmed by God. Mm-hmm. Now, every time we have that service now, I ask my grandchildren, previously my children, what is going on here? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? And then that can lead to a discussion about um, free will, about the need to structure a community, um, the question of whether a community needs an enemy. All of these things are become open up when you begin to see the opportunity for interpretation that comes out of a text. You don't have to say the text is 
literal should be read literally or the text should be read uh, not literally. What you need to be able to do is look at that text and see the opportunities. So to fossilize a value means simply not being able to open up the opportunities for reflection on the text, but to think that the text itself tells you how it should be read. Mm -hmm. An unfossilized value is simply to open that up, to allow a conversation, to allow people with different viewpoints to come together in some way to recognize that there is an openness here. Don't tell me how to read the text. I want to read it literally. You want to read it figuratively. Just let's talk about this openness. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because your notion of the future in this book as a concept that's important for education uh, seems to be analogous. It's not a single and unwavering vision of how things must be, but I would describe it as a prudential mindfulness uh, that the future by definition holds what we cannot anticipate before it happens. So let me ask you this. What does that concept of the future as an open thing, something that opens up to us, how does that connect to the, the notion of building a public? Well, I think what you, obviously, since the future is somewhat open, mm-hmm. I can't fill it in, uh, except maybe in uh, you know certain ways. I, mean, I do think that global warming is an issue that everybody has to worry about. Um, what we do about it is something that we can debate, but uh, to deny it, seems to me to be very um, counterproductive. Um, I think it's an issue that uh, can be looked at productively from a secular point of view, from a religious point of view. I don't think that that has anything to do with it. The science can be examined, but, you know. So in terms of filling in what the future will be, I think there are some things we can want lot of things that are, are really open there. But what, what I think an educator can do is to, I think here history is a tremendously important field of study. An educator can take some part of it and look at how ideas and values, and principles, and their understanding, and their interpretation have changed over time. Um, And I use in my book, uh, which I think is a very interesting uh, example, uh, the, um, the development of the concept of racism. Now, if you look back at dictionaries and encyclopedias, that are um, maybe, oh, six, 70 or 80 years old, mm-hmm. you don't find the concept of racism. You find somewhere in the 30s and 40s the concept of racialism, but that means something different. The concept of racism um, well, it first appeared in the Webster Dictionary in the 1930s, and but largely was confined to 
the way in which French felt about Belgians, Belgians felt about French. Uh, it didn't refer to Americans, refer how, how they referred to blacks. That developed quite slowly. But when it finally did develop, and when it finally took root, which is in the 50s, really in the 60s, mm-hmm. it became a, 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 a much um, important way of pointing out something that's pervasively wrong about a society. Now, history can show us, if we enter the point of from the past, the treatment of women is is another fine example. Uh, if we can enter the point of view of the past and see how interpretive moments have come about and how concepts have been developed over time, how our consciousness and our ideas take hold, change, um, evolve, then I think and think about their future as an open place without giving up who they are and where they want to stand. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because one objection that some readers and listeners, uh, and perhaps some of them among our listeners might raise, is that this vision of a robust and genuinely public education sets its sights on particular human communities and demands that Baptists or Muslims or political conservatives or any number of communities, it demands that they mute or even nullify their particularity. Now, I think that you have concepts in here that address that. So talk to our listeners a little bit about the distinction between what you call compulsory civility and then on the other hand, compulsory self-reflection. I think that distinction is going to be important here, and I think it opens up some possibilities for being public and being particular. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I don't remember where I said that. but um, uh, Page 116 like, is what I've got down in my notes. Okay, it sounds like a good distinction. Anyway, <laughs> I buy it. <laughs> um, I... I, I I I think that compulsory civility, I guess I would be referring, I'm trying to look at it quickly, Mm -hmm. Uh, I I would be, um, I would be referring to the, if it's about schooling, Mm -hmm. I am referring to the basic uh, rules that allow an educational system to function. Mm-hmm. You can't have an educational system if people are using the N-word or the uh, the Yid word, or mm-hmm. you can't have that, you can't, unless they're in, they're contextualized in a certain way for a certain particular purpose, say a poet or something, you cannot have a viable public education if that is allowed to go on. Mm -hmm. And so there have to be, I think, rules about discourse. 
within an educational setting. And those rules will, can be different than the rules outside an educational setting. They might be that we're much more permissive outside an educational setting about name-calling, for example, um, than we are within an educational setting, because outside the educational setting, we would hope, we would expect that there's a self-corrective process that would take place when somebody doesn't laugh at your sexist joke that's a self-corrective process. Mm -hmm. Within a school system, that, that has to be more set by rules. So I'm not terribly permissive about that. Um, and teachers have to teach students how to talk, even if they use uh, those words outside, the teacher has to teach them where and how it's appropriate or not appropriate, and why. Mm -hmm. So that's that would be what compulsory civility. And what was the other one? Reflective. Uh, co yeah, compulsory self-reflection. Um, yeah. On compulsory self-reflection, I don't think schools can do that. I mean, mm -hmm. they can't compel students to be self-reflective. I, and this might answer your question about the fear of conservative communities. Mm -hmm. I, I think if a youngster goes into a school and has and comes from a strong religious tradition, the school may um, provide opportunities for self-reflection but it has no right to compel self-reflection. Mm -hmm. um, and so the educational authority is limited in certain ways. That doesn't mean, however, that they should not provide opportunities for students to be self-reflective, but it does mean that they can't grade them for not being self-reflective, they can't um, force them to be self-critical, that's mm -hmm. a different kind of thing. Right, right. And I mean, what I liked about uh, the examples that you give, and by the way, listeners, I mean, this is uh, a good reason to go and buy this book, uh, is that the examples you provide really show this distinction as they might play out in a classroom. So, for instance, a student, uh, or a teacher, pardon me, could reasonably ask a student to frame public disagreements in a discourse that would allow a reasoned response. Uh, and that, you know, would be within the bounds of what a public education is after. But then, you know, as far as, you know, will the student end up agreeing with the student's neighbor? Well, that's not something you can predict. And moreover, as you just said, that's not something that you should assess in terms of whether the student was a success in school or not. Yeah, I, I should add that those examples actually come from um, my own and my colleague Rick Layton's observations mm -hmm. of schools that are teaching religion, and uh, they do it in very different ways, but we try to um, show some of the better examples uh, and this one comes from a school where um, the teacher is actually working with uh, kids who have very different senses of religious commitment mm 
mm-hmm. and in my view, does a terrific job of it. Well, good, good. Towards the end of this book, you take some time to address statewide testing and how its primacy threatens the democratic vision that you project mm-hmm. in this book. Talk to our listeners a little bit about that conflict. Right. Um, now, I, I should say that I, that I think that there is a place for testing in the schools, um, largely to see. My my view would be that this the the benchmark should be adequacy, um, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And schools should not be judged on how strong their test scores are. Mm-hmm. Um, but a certain level of adequacy, and then kids who are not um, up to the level probably need some kind of extra work uh, done. So, but I think that that the whole idea of testing has become misused um, as a punitive measure to um, uh, uh, identify what's called failing schools. Um, which is a silly concept, uh, given that uh, many of these schools are in terribly difficult areas where many kids, I mean, I'm thinking of Chicago, um, mm-hmm. I think post-traumatic stress uh, for many uh, kids in some of the schools in Chicago would be a better diagnosis than uh, uh, third-grade reading level. These mm-hmm. kids, if they're in a situation where there's gun violence, where family members have been assaulted or shot, they're suffering post-traumatic stress. The kids in uh, Flint, Michigan, who may be scoring below uh, test score level, that's not necessarily because they have bad teachers. It's probably because they have bad water mm. that is, that's limiting their capacity to concentrate and to take in ideas. Now, to the, 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 the statewide testing, in my view, is one of them. It's not the test that's destructive by itself. It's the singular interpretation of what the scores on those tests mean. And that the, the, the inability mm-hmm. to, to develop hypotheses other than that the school is failing these cho- children is, is, in my view, a political crime mm-hmm. uh, because it assaults teachers, it assaults students, it assaults parents um, without any clear understanding. Can you imagine a doctor who, when he diagnosed you with having high blood pressure, didn't ask you whether you had just climbed six flights of stairs or what your diet might be? but instead immediately recommended open-heart surgery. Mm -hmm. That's the equivalent of what we're doing with much of the statewide testing. Mm -hmm. It's undemocratic because it's unintellectual. All right. Well, as you head for the uh, close of your book, you turned your attention to a phenomenon that Uh, certainly is on my mind as a college professor, and that's the debt-financed university system in America. You point to several social and political dangers that that system poses. How does that neoliberal phenomenon 
connect with the other trends that you note in what is a public education? Well, I mean, the the it does it in, in two different ways. One is that the kids come out of school with such a debt that they have to opt for, if, they, if it's possible, uh, high-income occupations. And those occupations may not necessarily be the ones that are in most need. So, uh, the, so, so it exacerbates, and not just exacerbates inequality of income, it exacerbates inequality of service. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, healthcare comes to mind, but education comes in mind. But the better the school, the higher the pay usually. Uh, nursing comes to mind. It's it's just for students to come out with uh, an uh, uh, an insurmountable debt. And it also pushes students towards vocational schools. Uh, at the University of Illinois, we have a great engineering school. It's a wonderful school. Um, we have a, a great um, um, chemistry and physics department, all that. Um, but the kids who might profit from the humanities uh, or the social sciences are kind of I think prematurely um, uh, uh, motivated to uh, take up high-end professional callings. Mm-hmm. Um, doctors, new doctors who might want to spend some of their time uh, with doctors without borders can't really afford to do that because they got a huge debt to pay off. So th- that's one of the one of the issues that occurs. All right. Well, I have been at the wheel for most of today's conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. As we finish, what do you want our listeners to think about concerning public schools, neoliberalism, John Dewey, whatever else you want them thinking about? Um, thank you. Um, well, I hope they buy my book, or at least <laughs> ask their library to buy it. Um, and... Um, uh, I, I did another book with Rick Layton actually on schools that are teaching religion, uh, public schools that are teaching religion. Uh, and this is an area that I've just tur- turned to within the latter 15, 20 years. Uh, uh, religious education, public education, uh, the way in which the two hopefully can be reconciled. Uh, so I don't have any definitive last words except that I think that public, uh, the idea of public education needs to be reinvigorated. Regardless of what we think about state-run schools, we need schools that are able and willing and understand a mission to prepare a democratic public for life in a democratic society. We need that. We need it um, drastically, in my view, um, as we begin to, if we're not to uh, vilify uh, certain groups of people and if we're to continue as a viable, productive uh, democracy. Dr. Feinberg? I think that would be 
All right. Yes. Thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. It's been fun. Listener, where can I hear your? Where can I hear your? Um, it sounds like you have a lot of interesting broadcasts. And we, they, do you have do you have we, podcasts? Yes, we do indeed. Uh, we'll be releasing this one as a podcast in mid-April. Uh, we also have other shows on our network, and you can find them all at uh, ChristianHumanist.org. So, uh, listeners, okay. Dr. Feinberg just uh, prompted me to do the promo for the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>